Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week, our speaker is Rick Strangway, and he's continuing in our series, Moses the Hesitant Leader. And coming up this Friday on September 1st, we have our annual block party. And it's a great event where we wrap up the summer ahead of students in particular heading back to school. And it's open to the community to join and we could still use some volunteers. So if you're interested, you can connect with us through Realm or our website. Also, the Board of Elders have appointed our search team for the next senior pastor. Uh, That search team had their first meeting on August 14th, and we're excited to see how God guides this team. And the next step is posting the new senior pastor position, and that will be aimed for the first couple of weeks in September. So if you have any questions through this process, you can always email succession at southviewchurch.com. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. Or you can go on Realm, and if you join the group Southview Family Updates, that will make sure that you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you, and you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form, so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us always on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant, because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. It's a joy to be with you tonight. One of my roles at Ambrose University is to give oversight to the field education program. Field education in a Christian institution, particularly in a theology program, involves things that you might think of as a nurse or someone going into education, that uh, there's a part of the process before a student gets to the end of their degree where they have to have that practicum, real-life experience, taking knowledge from the classroom into the place of ministry and being mentored or supervised. Mentor is probably the better word. And I want to say this, uh, so appreciative to Southfield. Alliance Church, because you're the kind of community, or we are the kind of place that provides that kind of environments where students can thrive. This year, Southview has two, one graduate student, uh, Christina Braze, working with Spencer Young in the children ministry, and Sydney Duick, uh, working with uh, Pastor Devin in the youth ministry. And I always say to people, there's two things I look for when I'm looking to place someone uh, who's a student in into an environment where they can grow their competencies and their skill sets and their inner life can mature and grow. I look for two things. Number one, I look for a mentor that understands can walk with them, but I look for a healthy community. Because as you and I likely both know and realize, sometimes certain communities, certain church families maybe aren't in the most healthiest place, but being in a community where there's flourishing, where there's life, where there's love and kindness and grace, and so big thanks to Pastor Sam and the staff and the the leadership of Southview for partnering with Ambrose University and the School of Ministry and the seminary and taking on students. We're so appreciative of that, uh, that role. Let me begin 
tonight's message as we end this series on Moses, the hesitant leader, with a little story. A couple summers ago, my wife and I were enjoying a warm weather vacation. And as you do when you have pasty white skin like mine, you lie on a beach and you soak in a whole bunch of rays until you turn red like a lobster. And so that's about what I was doing one day, lying there and uh, enjoying the sun. And along from the left side uh, of myself, uh, as I looked out onto the ocean, was uh, an elderly couple beginning to make their way slowly across the beach with maybe one foot uh, in, in the water and the other three feet kind of moving their way across. They were kind of shuffling, or at least he was shuffling. It was obvious from the outset that she was kind of the stronger one, giving her husband, I assumed, her elbow as they made their way. And I'm guessing, though it's always terrible to guess, they're at least in their 70s. Maybe he looked like he could have been into his mid-80s, close to even late 80s. He was quite spiffy in his outfit as he kind of made his way across the beach and kind of uh, shuffled. But it was a slow kind of step, and he had a cane in the inside hand kind of up the beach side as he's making his way. I'm thinking to myself, this is great that they can enjoy their vacation together and enjoy the sun and be on the beach. I wonder how many more opportunities they'll have to do this together and all sorts of things were going through my mind. As I had my glasses on, they couldn't see that I was basically watching them and staring them the whole way through. And as they kind of came in front of me, I noticed she reached over and grabbed his cane. And then she left him for a moment and kind of threw the cane up the beach side right in front of us, about five or six uh, yards away, kind of on a bank that kind of went up where we were a bit more on a plateau. For the next 20 minutes, the two of them shuffled into the water and they enjoyed the waves as it kind of went from their chest to the neck. And I was admiring, thinking, that is so great. I hope that when my wife and I get a little bit older, we're enjoying life and that kind of pleasure and relationship together, and one of us will likely, probably me, leaning on the arm of my wife and holding on so I'd steady myself and so on. As they came out of the water, I realized, ooh, that cane is going to be slightly awkward for them to reach because it's now on this kind of bank part. Maybe I can go, and in my chatty self, I can go forward and grab that cane and hand it to him. So I went and picked it up and just kind of gave it to him, and I said, hey, do you mind me asking, I'm assuming you're married, but uh, how long have you been together? And uh, they kind of smiled, and they, we had a bit of a conversation as they told me some 60-odd years they'd, they'd been, begin together. And then he jumped in, eyes afire and alight, and he says, she still finds me sexy. I smiled and uh, chuckled to myself as I watched them turn, and I said, well, you're an encouragement to me, who's just a few years behind you in marriage, as I watch your relationship in this moment, these last few minutes, and bless you uh, as you enjoy the rest of your holiday here, uh, and they went uh, off back to wherever they had come from. There's something kind of beautiful that happens when we see the long journey of relationship unfold. You can't always explain it in the instantaneous. It doesn't always happen in a moment, and it doesn't always kind of unfold. All the pieces don't just kind of go there. It's through the grind of life, the ups and the downs, the situations, the complications. A few nights ago, I st stood at Camp Camistol in front of a, uh, some youth in the darkness of the evening with a fire going. As I looked at their eyes, you can see all the intensity of 15, 16, 17, and 18-year-olds wanting the answers to life so they could get it figured out now. But life unfolds, and spiritual life, 
the kind of deep, kind of formative life unfolds most often slowly. We've long left Moses as the little baby who was in the Nile River in that little kind of tar-covered uh, basket going up uh, before he was found by, by someone in the courts of uh, Pharaoh. We've long left Moses where he was there at one point when he was hesitant about who he was and his inability to speak and his hesitation if he was going to respond to God's invitation to trust. Now we find Moses somewhere near the end of the book of Exodus beginning to grow. There's a sense of confidence about him. He's encountered the living God. He's grown. There's a maturity and a trust, and there's something else that's going to begin to emerge. Spiritual life, the way of Jesus, the way of pursuing a life that's formed and shaped in Jesus, that bears fruit in time as we move forward, is a life that's long, and we grow as we walk in that long walk of faithfulness. In Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34, there's this kind of moment. Whoever wrote this beautiful book put it together in a way so that we see it as kind of a, a space where something dramatic had changed. The arc of the book goes from God calling Moses to God kind of being faithful to his people to God establishing in Exodus chapter 19 a covenant relationship with his people and declaring that these people, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were his people and if they would obey him in covenant relationship, he would be their God and go with them. And God formed the details of this covenant so they could walk in faith. And then God, in detail, and most people who begin to read the Bible through, from Genesis through uh, to the end, find themselves for the first time in this latter part of Exodus going, hmm, I'm not sure I'm going to read much longer about how to set up a tent. Because there was a whole lot of chapters about tent and things in this tabernacle and so on. And then the last part of the book is about how they actually set up the tent. First was the instructions from the living God. Second was uh, the part of actually setting up the tent, and the book ends with God's presence falling down and filling that tabernacle. But chapter 32 and 33 and 34 changed. The people of God have turned their hearts. Moses is high up on the place, uh, uh, the mountain of God, the Mount Horeb, as we once heard of, as now it's known as Mount Sinai. And he's up there meeting with God. And as he meets with God, the people become immediately restless and go to Moses' brother, the, the, the part of the Levite family, who eventually become the, the, the tribe of Levi, uh, who will be the priests uh, for the nation. And they go to him and they say, fashion us a golden calf. And that's what Aaron does. Well, in one way, it quickly was something that showed what their hearts were really like. And in fact, later, just to jump a little bit ahead of several hundred years later, Stephen, one of the early church leaders in Acts chapter 8 would describe it this way. He would say, they disobeyed God, they rejected God, and their hearts turned back to Egypt in that moment. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates uh, that same verse. He says, their hearts crave for the things of Egypt. And in that moment, we see the true story of humanity. The spiritual life often is something that seems to be going this way, and yet the human desire to attain, to reach, to struggle, to hold on to, to control, to do it our own way, 
gets in the way of what God seeks to graciously call us into. So what does Moses do? That's where we find Moses, in that moment. We'd like to read the first 16 verses of uh, Exodus chapter 33. I invite you to listen or to read along in your digital device or your, or, or your Bible in your hands as we read these verses, and we'll notice this. We'll notice that the narrative goes and tells a little bit of that story and mostly dwells on a dialogue. And in the middle of the narrative, there's kind of like a little descriptive piece of Moses going into a tent, and it seemed to have been a rhythm that he took regularly going into this tent. So friends, this is the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. And then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people that you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, God says. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I go with you, even for a moment I might destroy you. Take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites had stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. Now this little interlude. Moses used to take a tent. He'd pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people uh, saw, verse 10, the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And now back to our narrative, verse 12. And Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Lord, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation, these people, are your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, it's almost as if in the next verse, Moses doesn't fully believe what God has said. Or there's something here that we can't quite grasp, because he pushes hard again. Then Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? We'll stop right there. This is a profound story that we've just entered into. Moses is no longer trying to figure out who he is. He knows fully that he's in the place where God has called him. And now he finds himself contending for something. 
contending for something extremely significant in this conversation. There's a dialogue, and it might be one of the most dangerous dialogues we find in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. This dialogue with Moses coming before the living God and asking God to move in a certain specific way that God had promised to move in the past. And it appears at this point, because of God's righteousness and God's justice, that God is not going to go forward with his people. In fact, the sense is, is that God is going to fulfill his promise by sending his people forward, and they would get to the land, but they would not have the fullness of God's presence. And so Moses calls out for that very thing, God's presence. And in verse 15, we find the depths of his seriousness, this prayer, this expression, this, this conversation that gets, gets exposed in its innermost place where Moses says to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. There's nothing else that matters unless the living God is in the middle of the people of God. He pushes it even further in verse 16, the last verse that we read in the last sentence. What else would distinguish us? What else would make us unique? What else would stand out unless you go with us? This is the bold statement that Moses gives God, and this is what we want to try and grapple with for a few moments together. How do we make sense of this? Well, Moses walked through the camp, as was his regular fashion. He would head outside the camp, inside the tent of meeting. And while Moses would go inside the tent of meeting to contend with God or to pray with God or to meet with God, as we hear, read in the scriptures as a friend, we would find that the people would stand inside the camp, outside their tents, and they would watch and they would worship. They recognize that something happened as God came down and, and began to dialogue with, with Moses. And we see in this momentary little passage that something is pushing beyond sometimes our quaint spiritualities. There's something profound about the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, the holiness of God. There's something about the mystery of God that ought to make my inner life shudder. For God will act in the way that he will act. He will show compassion and mercy. And in fact, in a moment, as we, if we were to read on, we would hear those very words. And as Moses pushes, he says... Uh, sorry, and as Mo God responds to Moses, God says, I will do the very thing that you will ask. And Moses jumps even further into the conversation or the prayer. And he says, show me your glory. By the end of the chapter, we see that God is finally responding to Moses' request, that somehow we have this question. Has God changed his mind? Has God entered in? Is the mystery of God fully known to humanity as we contend, as we pray, and we ask God's presence? And God says that he will pass. And the final sentence, the final verse of chapter 33 reads like this. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. And then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. God's presence was revealed to Moses, but all Moses saw, in a sense, was the back of God. 
By the time we get to the very next chapter, there's now a reformation of the, of the covenant. Somehow the mercy and the compassion of God has been set into, back into effect, and God responds, not simply because Moses made God, oh no, we do not have that right or that position or that power, but Moses on his knees on behalf of the people reached up to God in prayer and contended with God to move and to come back in, full, in faithfulness to his people. In verse 1 of chapter 34, God calls Moses up, and the covenant is remade, and the, ten, and the stone tablets are remade, and in verse 5 and 6, we hear these words that are so beautiful and so wonderful, and yet so other than what we would understand and fully grasp. As God passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and to the fourth generation. Here's what I'd like us to lean into as we come to the very end of this four-week series on Moses. Well, we could dive deep into the mystery of God that is there, the graciousness of God, the justice and the righteousness of God. I want us to think about Moses and his role. The writers of the book of Exodus make a comparison. It's there written into the narrative. Well, Israel fails, Moses rises to the top. Well, Israel fails to act in the way that they should in obedience to God, to represent God, to be fully formed as the people of God. Moses acts as a mediator on behalf of the people to the living God and on behalf of the living God to the people. We might summarize it with three simple ideas, and these ideas could be this. Moses acted in a way where he knew that the defining mark of the people of God would be the presence of God. Can I say that one more time? Moses understood, as we now would understand post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the defining mark of the people of God would be the living presence of Christ in our lives. Moses understood as the people of a church and a local church, an expression of God's, God's, God's uh, reality here on earth, that they would understand that the defining mark that would mark the church is not a building or not a place or not a street or not a sign or not a certain type of ministry or not something that happens up front or not something that happens behind, but the presence of God actively in the midst of the people. Moses understood the sig significance of that. And as the law of Moses is being unfolded, as it's often referred to, or the law of God, the Torah, the teaching, Moses understood a second thing. He understood that the only way for us to fully be in obedience, to understand the way of God, or we might say it again, the way of Jesus, is for the living presence of God to be at work in our midst. And so again, we know the significance as this church has been richly nurtured on the word. That when we turn to the word, whether it's alone or as a family or as a couple or whether it's us as a gathered community in a weekend service, we know the significance that God meets us in his word and God is the one who is forming us through his word in real time. The Torah, the law, the teaching of God, or to push it again into the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus only comes alive through the presence of Jesus in our lives. Thirdly, and I've alluded to this already. Moses understood something. 
that the role of humanity in the midst of this world was something that so often seemed to have been failing in this formation story. The people missed it. They were faltering. They were not embodying the presence of God as they sought after the gods of Egypt again. They were not embodying and becoming a witness of God to the other nations. And Moses understood a, a sense, a task, a role of mediation, of reconciliation, of something that happens of representing God here on earth. I go back to Exodus chapter 19. I only need to say the words. God had said to the people that you will be a treasured possession a royal priesthood. And what is it the priests do? They contend on behalf of the people and bring their offerings to God, and they take that which God offers and mediates it back to the people. Then in a sense, the role of humanity, and we'll see this again and again in Exodus or Deuteronomy chapter 19, or we hear echoed in, in, the, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the role of humanity is that we are to be representatives in this world. And as Moses was an example, Jesus becomes the true example of what a human life should look like as we live in the midst of this world. So three things we want to begin to form our action around. The first is this. In, with, and for. In. Moses understood that the only way the only way for God to be at work in this world is for the people to be in the midst of the world. He understood this mediating priest, uh, work that we are called to, this action of what it means to be at work and, 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 and doing the, the redemptive call of God in the world is to be in the midst of the world, acting on behalf of God. Paul would say again to be reconcilers, doing the great work of reconciliation, joining God in that work. A number of years ago, I was a pastor at a church called Surrey Alliance Church in Surrey, B.C. And Surrey in the early 80s was a fairly predominant Euro-Canadian church. Most people attended there. Most people who were in that part of Surrey, the northern part of, uh, of Surrey, were people who were white. But by the end of the 80s and the early 90s, the SkyTrain came out from Vancouver. It landed and things began to shift a little bit and a lot of social dynamics began to kind of affect that northern part of Surrey that's just off the Trans-Canada Highway. With that came a number of different people and a very diverse community over the 90s into the early 2000s began to come. A lot of Southeast Asians began to move there. And it became a, a place not only of diversity, but with the SkyTrain came a lot of the drug traffic and the homelessness. The church itself, the building, was a building that was built in a number of different series of buildings, and it was just a block or two from the SkyTrain. By the time my wife and I and our young little children arrived there, we recognize quite quickly that you don't walk outside the building with your children after a Sunday or a weekend service. Because if you do, you might find a needle there on the grass, or you might find uh, some other things that were left there as prostitutes would turn their tricks uh, on, uh, on the church parking lot uh, through, through the weekend and so on. And the church became a place that had a whole lot of different issues surrounding it. And in many ways, it became a challenge. A friend of mine who was the chairman of the board at that time, his name was Jim, began to realize more than others 
that so many of the people that were in that church at that time, that we came from outside of that community and drove into that church again and again. And he began to initiate and, and be a part of something where every Monday night we'd begin to serve the homeless along with several other churches so that soon there became a homeless ministry through food that was served week after week and every night of the week and we had a certain turn in our rotation. But Jim did even more. He began to get involved in some of the homeless issues that were there. And while he worked in the church and while he had a job that took him in out of Vancouver every day, he spent a lot of time spending time in the neighborhood with people listening to their stories. And he befriended people. And one of the people that he befriended was a lady by the name of Cheryl. Cheryl was close to my age, and Cheryl had spent a number of years in addiction and a number of years selling herself on the streets. She had a daughter who was in the same cycle uh, that she had been most of her life. And Jim and his wife began to invite Cheryl to the church. And again and again, Cheryl would come. Sometimes she'd come regularly, and sometimes it would be quite sporadic as the addictions would, would kind of take her in, and she'd get, fall back into that. And she would find herself lost. But again and again, there was something holistic that was beginning to take form in her own life as Christ began to work its way in. Jim taught me something in those early years. He showed me what, it like, what it's like to be involved in the people in this world around us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we hear these words from Jesus, that Jesus came to dwell amongst us. To literally tabernacle, as you've maybe heard before, Eugene Peterson says it this way, that he came to move into the neighborhood so that we could befriend people, be, be uh, close to people, to know people's names, to build relationships, to understand the issues around us, whether it's our own street or it's our school or it's our workplace. In becomes so significant. The second thing we want to continue to grapple with as we end, as we get closer to the end, is this with. Not only do we need to be in the world, but we need to continue to recognize that as mediators, as a royal priesthood, as a community of faith, that we continue to dwell fully with God with us and us with God. That the reason I again and again come into community of faith to offer my worship together with you is that I come together so that we bring our affections, our heart, so I come together to learn so my mind is renewed in Christ, so I come together so that we become one and God continues to shape us as a community of faith. Fundamentally, that idea, as we sung about earlier, of holiness is an important piece of this whole thing. I don't do ministry, in a sense, in the world without the strong recognition of the presence of God. Dr. Bernie Vanderwall, former uh, professor at Ambrose University and now a district superintendent in the Canadian Midwest District, wrote a book on holiness a number of years ago. He said this in his book. He said, holiness as we would understand it in Scripture, is a word that has a sense of otherness. Kind of that sense of this is not the common everyday thing. There's a, there's a mystery to it as we particularly think of holiness in relationship to God. But holiness beyond that otherness also has another element to it, and it's the relational element. That everything that is in contact to that which is holy, a holy God in other words, now becomes holy. 
This sense of us being called to be in the world and with God or God with us is such an important movement in our understanding or our own theology that we only become a people who are distinct as we remain in relationship with God. Fundamentally, the beauty of the people of God is the beauty of Christ in us, always at work, in, with. And the third thing we'll end with is simply this, for. The reason why we keep coming back to the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture and the Old Testament foundation stories is we want to absorb ourselves so that we are saturated with the work of God and how he moves in this world. We want to become for the things of God. And the only way that can happen in someone who gets about my age and a little bit slower in my mind is to continue to stay in these stories so that I can understand the way God calls me to work, so that I can serve in the world and I can be about the things in this world. So when we hear things that are happening in our community or outside our church building or in in some support group, we rejoice together. For we see that God is at work and people are for the things of God in this world. That the grand and beautiful arc of God's redemptive, redemptive narrative that finds itself in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now ascended to the right hand of the Father and given us the Spirit, continues forward through you and through I, as a people uniquely defined and shaped and marked by the living presence of Christ. And now in Christ, we contend for the issues of the world. We might recognize and say, with those students who are in our schools today, we might recognize and say, if you're like me and have a skin color uh, like me, that I'm a settler on this land. And so I fight for truth and reconciliation. I want to be someone who understands and does a better job in understanding my place in this world so that people understand the love and the grace and the mercy of God as I learn from them. We contend for the poor. We care for those who are grieving and hurting. We reach out to brother and sister. We live our lives in a sacrificial way because as we live in the story of God through the power and the presence of Jesus Christ, we live in the way that we are for things of God in this world and his redemptive vision. At the end of the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, Two followers of Jesus were walking along, quite discouraged because they had heard that Jesus had died. And on this road that they walked, Jesus came along, unbeknownst to them. Jesus began to teach them the scriptures and show them how they related to him. They came to a place where at one point they sat and they broke bread together. And it says this in their peculiar words. It says, when they received that which was given to them from Jesus, their eyes were opened. They saw the world in a different light, and they saw that they had spoke with Jesus, and their hearts began to burn anew and fresh. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, when the story takes a turn, we would find that when Adam and Eve reached for that apple and partake and receive that apple, that their eyes were also opened. And they saw all the possibilities of grasping, of reaching, of taking control of their own life, of living a life without God. As we think about what God calls us to do, to be a people who are in, with, and for the things of God,
we continue to find ourselves in a rhythm of participating in a meal. And in that meal, we receive so that God would continue to open up our eyes and our hearts so that we could come alive to the things that he calls us to. I invite you, I invite you not just to remember the gracious and kind work of God, the mercy that's extended through the cross. When Christ would lay down his life and his righteousness would become our righteousness and we would receive. But we would, we would recognize the gift of the living Christ who now in this moment as we partake in the elements, the bread and the cup here in a moment, that we, as we partake together, that we would see again with freshness our own story lives in the ways we can be in and with and for the things of God. Let me read these words of Jesus as we take our elements together and close our service. Jesus said this with his disciples. Take and eat, for this is my body. Let us partake together. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Would you join me as we give thanks? Father, we thank you for the gracious offering of your Son. And we thank you for the gracious invitation through Jesus to not only receive that which leads to life, but to enter into this life and to continue to receive that which we need today, living bread that would sustain us so that we could individually, collectively, as couples or families, as a community of faith, be your presence in this world, carrying forth your redemptive work in this world. We're grateful for your grace, mercy, and compassion that is extended to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we close our service, I invite you to stand to receive the benediction. Simple words of Jesus that he spoke to his own disciples, and we might receive them today as words that would continue to think about the way that we live in this world together and or the way that we would live as individuals or families. When Jesus was with his disciples in John chapter 20, we hear these words where Jesus would say, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive my spirit, he would say. May we go, confident of the great call that God has placed upon each of our life, the extension of the living Christ alive within us, and the power of the Spirit at work day to day as we leave this place. God bless.